I'm very pleased, but I'm happy. Uh, do you know how many languages are there in the world? According to the United Bible Societies, 7,350 languages are spoken today. One more question. Do you know how many fully translated Bible are there in the their language? There are different translate Bible by 692 languages. Thankfully, you and I have the Bible translated by our language. Now I read the Word of God in Korean, one of the 7,350 languages. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. 고린도 후서 13장 5절 읽겠습니다. 너희는 믿음 안에 있는가 너희 자신을 시험하고 너희 자신을 확증하라. 예수 그리스도께서 너희 안에 계신 줄을 너희가 스스로 알지 못하느냐. 그렇지 않으면 너희는 버림받은 자니라. God to read from his word in multiple languages. Before we get started, I do want to share a few things with you. To those of you who are part of the Wednesday morning class, it will be meeting this week. Uh, Brother Ben Hogan will be subbing for me, and I want to go ahead and make you aware of that so you can plan to attend on Wednesday morning. Also, I want to make you aware that in your bulletin you will see an insert today that looks something like this. And what it says at the top is 2020 special events. It refers to some special events we have planned for the coming year, and we wanted to go ahead and get that in your hands as early as possible so you can begin marking your calendar and making plans to be a part of it. Uh, we have several special things going on in the coming year that, that the leadership has uh, developed and, and worked through. We've got some uh, unique opportunities with some, some uh, weekend and, and Sunday emphases that we have not had in the past. You'll be hearing more about those uh, in the coming days and, and in, in the course of next year, but you'll notice we have our charge weekend in January. Please put that on your calendar and be thinking about it. Uh, we also have some other special weekends, such as one at the end of April that will be called Focus. We've got um, a Harvest Weekend in August, which is essentially going to be our gospel meeting, but in a weekend format. And then we have uh, another one called Refine, that's a special uh, Sunday emphasis in November. You'll also notice that we're going to be doing either a singing night or a prayer service every month. They'll be alternating months, so the first month in January we'll be having a singing night on, uh, I can't remember the date off the top of my head, on the 19th, and then in February we'll, we'll have a prayer service. So there'll be six prayer services, six singing nights throughout the course of next year. But we want to make you aware of that. You'll also notice at the top of the sheet, it gives our theme for next year. Our theme is going to be 2020 Vision. And the emphasis of this theme is, is to focus on the things that really matter. There's a reference there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18. And, and, and we're going to build our, our theme around this idea that we need to have spiritual vision. We'll talk more about that next month as we introduce the theme and talk about it. But with that in mind, we're going to be talking about examining ourselves today. Today's lesson, as you can see, is called exam time. And as we, most of us all know... Exams are just a part of life. We undergo academic exams to analyze the progress of our education, and sometimes they don't go very well. 
Like the student who approached the teacher and said, I, I don't think I deserved an F on this test. And the teacher responded, I don't either, but that's, that's the lowest grade I could give you. <laughs> you know, we also undergo occupational exams. And we have these exams related to our careers and to our jobs that are designed to help adequately train us for what it is that we do. And sometimes those exams really challenge our area of expertise. Kind of like the police officer who was asked during an ethics training session, what would you do if you had to arrest your own mother? And he replied, call for backup. <laughs> and then we undergo medical exams from time to time. And those medical exams, they, they attempt to determine the state of our health. And sometimes we don't hear the news that we're hoping for, kind of like the husband who went to the doctor and told the doctor that he's not able to do all the things around the house that he used to because he's so lethargic. So the doctor gave him a thorough examination, and when it was complete, the husband said, okay, doc, tell me what it is. You can, you can tell me in plain English, English. I can handle it. And the doctor said, well, in plain English, you're just lazy. And the husband said, okay, now can I have the medical terminology so I can tell my wife? <laughs> See, just as academic examinations ne are necessary for a, a, a healthy education, and occupational examinations are, are necessary for a successful career, and physical examinations are necessary for a healthy life, spiritual examinations are necessary for a healthy faith. And throughout the Bible, you'll encounter many occasions when God's messengers call on God's people to examine themselves. For, exa for example, in Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 40, Jeremiah told the nation of Israel that, that they, need, they should not complain or question God, but instead they should test and examine their ways and return to the Lord. And of course, one that's probably familiar to you is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 28, where Paul Paul told the church in Corinth that a person ought to examine himself before he or she partakes of the Lord's Supper to ensure that he or she is not partaking in an unworthy manner. But the scripture I really want to turn your attention to today is the one that was read a moment ago, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, where Paul gave these instructions to Christians. He said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. See, Scripture clearly teaches that spiritual examination is necessary, is essential, is required. But what exactly should we be looking for when we're examining ourselves in this manner? See, today I want us to consider three spiritual hazards for which we need to examine ourselves in order to ensure that they are not threatening our spiritual health. And though there are more than just three things we should be looking for, I want to focus on these three. The first thing we need to examine ourselves for is stagnation. Stagnation refers to the state of, of not flowing or not moving. We're most familiar with the concept of stagnation when it comes to water, because stagnant water is water that lacks movement. Water that's just standing still. Here's the problem with stagnation. Stagnation has the potential to cause regression. You see, stagnant water, water that lacks movement, typically regresses from a state of drinkability to undrinkability. 
That's because stagnant water becomes a breeding ground for various insects, and those insects carry diseases and bacteria that they transmit to the water. So stagnant water is water that's stopped moving and water that is standing still and as a result has made itself vulnerable to regression. Hopefully, the spiritual application of this concept is not hard for us to make. Faith, like water, can stagnate. That's why all throughout the New Testament, stagnation is identified as an unacceptable state. Now, you're not going to find stagnation terminology in Scripture. You're not going to find a reference to the word stagnant in Scripture, per se. But the New Testament's anti-stagnation policy is evident, is conveyed through its pro-maturation expectation. For example, you can go to 2 Peter chapter 1. And in verses 5 through 8, we have what is commonly referred to as the Christian graces. And in these Christian graces, Peter presented a maturation process. He instructed his readers to make every effort to supplement your faith or add to your faith virtue. And virtue, knowledge, and knowledge, self-control, and, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, not staying still, not going backward, not regressing, increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Peter provided here is an expectation of growth. Notice that the list starts with faith, but it doesn't stagnantly remain at faith. There are traits that must be developed. There is maturation that must happen. There is forward movement that is expected. Without specifically saying it, Peter condemn stagnation by identifying the spiritual growth process through which followers are expected to move. And the expectation of spiritual maturation is also presented by the author of Hebrews. If you go to Hebrews chapter 5, the author of Hebrews indicates that his readers were expected to have matured spiritually by the point of his writing. This is apparent in verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews chapter 5. And in this section of Scripture, he criticized his readers' lack of maturation by referring to them as children who still needed to drink milk because they were not yet ready to consume solid food. And then he challenged them, and if you'll skip over to chapter 6 and look at verse 1, I want you to see what he challenged them with. He said this, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. In other words, the author of Hebrews scolded his readers for being stagnant spiritually, for not maturing, for not growing up, and he called on them to move. He called on them to grow. He called on them to mature. Clearly, such passages reveal that God expects us to grow spiritually, that God expects us to mature, that God expects us to move forward spiritually rather than to stand still or even regress. So we need to examine ourselves and determine whether our faith is growing or our faith is stagnant because a faith that isn't growing is ultimately a faith that is regressing. See, stagnation is spiritually dangerous 
because it, because it makes faith vulnerable to regression. I want you to consider how stagnation compromised the faith of the Israelites, particularly in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. At the outset of Numbers chapter 14, we're told that all the congregation of Israel raised a loud cry and wept and grumbled and said to Moses and Aaron, would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they wanted to choose a new leader who would lead them back to Egypt. Now at this point in the story of the Exodus, think about where their faith should be. What level should the Israelites' faith be at? God's power, they had witnessed so many things between Egypt and this point in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. God's power had been made evident to them. They had witnessed God's power when he brought plagues on Egypt, when he parted the Red Sea, and through those events, he secured their safe release from Egypt. And they witnessed God's continual presence with them throughout the whole journey as a pillar of cloud led them by day and a pillar of fire led them by night. And they had witnessed God's provision for them as he dropped manna on the ground every morning and he sent quail for them to eat every evening and he made fresh water miraculously available on multiple occasions. They, at this point in their story, should have a solidly developed faith. They should be at the point where whatever God asked them to do, they readily and unhesitatingly do it because he had proven himself time and time again. But if you journey back into Numbers chapter 13, you may recall that God gave them an assignment. He had spies go out from among them to investigate the land of Canaan before they entered it. Now I want you to think, why did God have them send out spies? Why are spies involved in this story? I'm sorry I'm messing with the microphone so much. I've lost my clip. And so it's not wanting to stay put. So I'm, I'm working with it here, sorry. Why did God want them to send out spies? Did God need to know about the lay of the land? Certainly not. He created it. Did he need to know the strength of the military forces of the, the people that inhabited the land? Not at all, because God alone outnumbered them by himself. The reason God had them send out spies was not for his benefit at all. The reason God had the spies go into the land of Canaan was for their benefit. And here's how. He was going to have them go report on economic matters. For instance, he's going to have them go and, and check out the land to determine if it was good or bad land, whether the land was rich or poor, whether there were trees in it or not. And they were even going to bring back some of the fruit to show just what grew there. So they were going to report on economic matters, but they were also going to report on military matters. They were going to go and, and, and look at the people who dwelled in the land and determine if they were strong or weak few or many, whether the cities they dwelled in were camps or strongholds, that sort of thing. So they were going to report back on military matters as well. And, and here's what the report was. When they came back, they said, they, they unanimously, all of the spies said, hey, the land is ideal. The land is perfect. The land is great. And the people that live there are strong. Now, Caleb and Joshua, who were two of those spies, they, 
they encouraged the people to go up and occupy the land because they reasoned that if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. They had faith that the God who brought them out of Egypt, who protected them in the wilderness, who guided them to this location, that he could handle this. But you know what? The people didn't listen to the minority, to Joshua and Caleb. They listened to the other ten spies. And those other ten spies said, we're not able to go up against the people. They're stronger than we are. And these people listened to the report of those ten spies. And here they are, on the precipice of a new land a land promised to them by God, and they're refusing to move forward. That's what's happening in Numbers chapter 14 when the people said they wanted to go back to Egypt. They would rather return to slavery than trust God to deliver the land to them. And it exposes the truth about their faith. This whole time when their faith should have been growing, it was stagnant. Their faith had not progressed during all of those years as they witnessed the parting of the Red Sea, as they saw manna on the ground, as water came from a rock. Their faith never moved. Their faith never grew. It remained stagnant. So now, when their faith was put to the test, their stagnation was exposed, and it caused regression. Do you know what happened to those people? In Numbers chapter 14, verse 22 and 23, this is what God said about those people. He said, None of the men who saw His glory via those signs that He did in Egypt and in the wilderness, that none of those men who saw His glory and still put Him to the test and did not obey His voice, none of them were going to be allowed to see the land that He promised to give them. That was the consequence. Because their faith refused to grow, and because of that, they refused to trust Him in this moment that was a test. Their consequence was to miss out on the promised land. I believe a significant lesson for us to take away from this situation is that the ultimate consequence of stagnant faith is a sacrificed inheritance. The ultimate con consequence of a stagnant faith is a sacrificed inheritance. See, Scripture asserts that without faith it is impossible to please God in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. But I think Scripture inherently also teaches that without a growing faith, without a growing faith, it's impossible to please God. Because God expects for us to add to our faith, as 1 Peter chapter 1 says. And God expects for us to mature from milk to meat, as the author of Hebrews says. So we have to examine ourselves to see whether or not our faith is stagnant. Because a stagnant faith does have consequences. Since a stagnant faith is vulnerable to regression. But stagnation is not the only issue we need to be examining ourselves for. We also need to examine ourselves for what I'm going to call disconnection. Disconnection refers to a state of, of detachment. You know, when an, when an electronic device is disconnected from its power source, it's not operational. It's, it's not working. It's not functionally useful. It's unplugged. It's uninvolved. It's unusable. See, disconnection 
means that we are not connected, that we are unplugged, that we are uninvolved, that we are unuseful. And spiritually speaking, disconnection occurs when we fail to be kingdom contributors. You see, Scripture repeatedly teaches that each and every one of us has a role to play in the work of the kingdom. For example, Paul indicated in Romans chapter 12, between verses 4 through 6, that the church is one body comprised of many members who do not all have the same function. And he gives this instruction, he says that, that as members of one another, we are to use the gifts that have been given to us for the benefit of one another. Then in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16, Paul indicated that the, the whole body of Christ is joined and held together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. His point is that in order for the church to be united and to grow, every member has to do its part, fulfill its role, contribute its gift. And finally, Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10-11, through 11, he said, As each of us has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God-varied grace. And he goes on in verse 11 to indicate that the reason we are to use our gifts to serve one another is so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The implication of Peter's words here is that our contribution to the kingdom in whatever fashion it takes, and it's going to differ between each of us, that our contribution to the kingdom of God benefits its members, but it also brings glory to God. Clearly, such passages as Romans 12, as Ephesians 4, as 1 Peter 4, clearly these passages indicate that we have a responsibility to contribute, to contribute our talents, to contribute our skills, to contribute our gifts, our knowledge, our resources, all to the work of the kingdom. So we need to examine ourselves and determine whether or not we are ministerially disconnected, whether or not we're refusing to contribute to the work of the kingdom. Because if we are not operational, if we are not working, if we are not allowing ourselves to be used, then we are endangering ourselves spiritually. And here's what I, rem here's what I mean. Do you remember the parable of the talents? This is one of those teachings of Jesus that I recycle all the time because there's so many applications from it. But in the parable of the talents, you have a parable about stewarding your resources for the benefit of God's kingdom. In fact, the parable begins with Jesus saying in verse 14, The kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. Now, I want you to think about the significance of that introductory statement. The parable is telling us what the kingdom of heaven is like. That, in that statement, Jesus makes it very clear that he's addressing kingdom issues here. Not worldly issues, kingdom issues. He goes on to describe the distribution of resources to three different servants. One servant received five talents, and a, and a talent is a, a, a form of currency back then. One servant received five talents, one servant received two talents, one servant received one talent. It's worth noting that these servants did not receive the same amount of resources. The, the, the resources they received were not equal across the board. 
They had varying degrees of resources at their disposal because their, but, and because their resources differed, their gains were expected to differ as well. This is evident based on the fact that the master responded the same way to the achievements of the five-talent servant and the two-talent servant, even though they, they did not produce the same numerical results. Now notice that the story goes on. It tells us that the five-talent servant and the two-talent servant, they took the resources they had received, they utilized them, and they grew the master's kingdom. And when the master returned to examine the results of their work, he told those two individuals, well done, good and faithful servant. But then we have this one-talent servant. He took the resource that the master had given him and he buried it. He deliberately chose not to utilize what had been given to him. And as a result, he did not contribute to the growth of his master's kingdom. What I really want you to focus on is the response of the master to the one talent servant's decision not to utilize his resource. It's in Matthew chapter 25, verses 26 through 30. Here's the answer of the master. You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. You ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, the master called the servant who hid his talent wicked. He called him lazy. He even called him worthless. He deemed that servant unfit to receive a reward. And the language used in condemning the one-talent servant, the outer darkness, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's language that's typically associated with eternal punishment. See, I believe a significant lesson for us to take away from the, the parable of the talents is that God views one failure to contribute to his kingdom as an act of wickedness. That God expects all of us to contribute in some fashion to the work of his kingdom. You see, the one thing that was equal across the board for the five-talent, two-talent, and one-talent servant, the one thing that was equal all the way across the board was the expectation that they would use their talent. You see, even when the master addressed the one-talent servant, he said, you know what you should have done? Instead of burying that talent, you should have at least invested it somewhere so that I could have gotten back some gains from it. You chose not to use it. That's the problem. The equal factor for all of these servants is that they're expected to contribute, that they're expected to utilize what's been given to them. And so when we look at the condemnation of the one-talent servant, it should make us realize that our refusal or our failure to contribute to the kingdom of God is spiritually hazardous. And so we need to examine ourselves 
to see if we're guilty of being disconnected, of not finding a way, a means, an opportunity to contribute to the kingdom of God. And here at Buford Church of Christ, we are very blessed because we have a variety of ministries in all shapes and sizes and forms that give us an opportunity to contribute. And if you're not plugged in in some fashion to the work of the kingdom that's being done here or abroad in the world, you need to find a way to plug in and to utilize what you have for the benefit of God. Because not one of us wants to be guilty of being a one-talent servant. So examine yourselves for disconnection. And there's one final category that must be mentioned. And it's isolation. We need to examine ourselves for isolation. Isolation refers to a state of alienation. When something is isolated, it's separated from a larger unit. Now, when I thought of this, I thought about a medical quarantine. A medical quarantine is a form of isolation. In such circumstances, an individual is intentionally removed from contact with others for protective purposes. It may be to protect the quarantine individual's weakened immune system from being compromised by contact with the larger population. Or it might be to protect the larger population from being exposed to whatever the quarantine individual has contracted. Either way, a medical quarantine is designed to produce isolation. And to use that example, what I want us to realize when we talk about isolation, we're talking about an individual separating himself or herself from the community. We're talking about individuality above community. Spiritually speaking, isolation occurs when an individual Christian segregates himself or herself from the body of Christ. In other words, one is guilty of isolating himself or herself when he or she refuses to build intimate and accountable relationships with other Christians. This happens more than we realize because we are the culture, we are the society that prizes individuality, that praises privacy. We're the society that has decided that my personal freedoms are more important than anything else and my right to being private and secret is a right that I hold dear. But what we have to realize is that although becoming a disciple of Jesus is an individual decision, it is not intended to be an isolated journey. See, God has always related his covenant to mankind through community. Whether it was through the nation of Israel in the Old Testament or the church in the New Testament, God's covenant has always existed in the context of community. And this is really evident in the New Testament when you pay attention to the abundance of one another commands that are there. The phrase one another appears over 90 times in the New Testament. And it's associated with over 35 different verbs. So for example, we have instructions to love one another and outdo one another in, in, in showing honor and to live in harmony with one another in Romans chapter 12. We have instructions in Romans chapter 15 to welcome one another as Christ welcomed us and to instruct one another. We have these one another statements in Galatians chapter 5 and chapter 6 where we're instructed to serve one another and to bear one another's burdens. 
In the book of Ephesians, we're told to be kind to one another, to forgive one another, and to submit to one another. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, we're instructed to exhort or encourage one another. And in chapter 10, verse 24, we're instructed to stir up one another. All of these one another commands are special and important to notice because they require community. In other words, you cannot fulfill the one another commands without interacting with other people. Therefore, the one another commands teach us that following God requires relationships. Clearly, such passages indicate that we have a responsibility to build intimate and accountable relationships. So we need to examine ourselves and determine whether or not we are relationally isolated. Because if we are not connected, if we are not building such relationships, we are failing to fulfill a biblical expectation of disciples. Now I want you to think for a moment. Why is it that God intends for us to exist within a community of believers. I think it's because when we are alone, we are most, the most susceptible to Satan's attacks. Think about it with me. When did John the Baptist start to question Jesus' identity? It was when he was isolated in prison, according to Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. And when did Elijah grow discouraged in his ministry? According to 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, it was when he was fleeing from Jezebel and thought that he was the only zealous follower of God left. And when did David reach his lowest point? According to Psalm chapter 142, which is a very disparaging uh, psalm, a, a cry of, of pain. According to that psalm, it was when he was separated from his family, from his mentor, from his best friend, and living in isolation in a cave. And when did Jesus face a series of temptations brought on by the devil? When he was alone in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4. For all of the aforementioned heroes of faith, as well as the Son of God, the most difficult days for them spiritually were the days when they were isolated. Maybe that's why the Bible identifies Satan as a lion. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10, which you are probably familiar with, refers to Satan as, as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Think about the hunting tactic of a lion for a minute. Lions are patient when it comes to hunting down their prey. They wait to attack an animal when it is at its most vulnerable state. And if you've ever watched Discovery Channel or National Geographic or any of these shows that show antelope being chased by lions, you learn that the lion's primary hunting tactic is to separate its prey from the herd. And then when the prey is by itself, it overpowers that lone creature with its strength. I believe a significant lesson for us to take away from the lion metaphor as well as the one another commands is that isolation makes us vulnerable to Satan's attacks. And therefore, we need to be cognizant of the precarious situation that isolation from the body of Christ puts us in. I think that 
That's why the author of Hebrews instructs us in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 to not neglect meeting together. Because there is safety in numbers. And, and, and the preacher of Ecclesiastes summarized this truth in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. He said, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. And in verse 12, he concludes by saying this, Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Here's the point. Numbers matter. You are stronger in relationship than you are in isolation. And so God created the church for our spiritual benefit, and God expects for us to operate in the context of those relationships. And there are some that try to be a Christian all by themselves. And they never build relationships with other people in the body, and they keep everybody at a distance because they don't want their privacy invaded. But that's not how God created us. God created us to operate with one another. He called us members of one another. Not members by ourselves, but members of one another. And so among the body of believers, you have a support system that you can't have anywhere else. Don't throw it away. Don't ignore it. Don't abuse it. Don't run from it. God expects us to be a part of a body, members of one another, because there is strength in one another. So we need to examine ourselves to see if we're pursuing isolation as Christians because we may be exposing ourselves to an attack that we cannot fathom. I mentioned earlier that our theme for next year is 2020 vision. And here's the thing about good vision. Good vision necessitates the ability to examine ourselves. And while there are numerous spiritual hazards for which we should be watching out, we focused on these three today because stagnation, disconnection, and isolation are three of the most prominent yet overlooked hazards in this culture. So this morning, I challenge all of us to take a long, hard look at ourselves, to examine who we are and, and where our faith is at, and to see if there is anything that needs to change, any decisions that need to be made, any rights that need to be wrong, any circumstances that need to be changed. So you may be here today and you may not be a part of the body of Christ. You may be here today and you may just be wanting to find out more about what a relationship with God is. You know, we'd be happy to study with you. You may be here today and you may be struggling with something that is eating you up, that is complicating your life, that is creating stress that you want to get rid of. You may need the prayers of a body of Christ for which you've been instructed to confess your sins to one another, pray for one another. Maybe you need that today. Maybe you are a Christian and you've, you've erred. You've gotten off the path. You're not living according to God's standards. Your faith is indeed stagnant. And you need some help reigniting it, getting it moving again. Your support system is here. 
Maybe. You've never become a child of God. But you hear this, and you realize there's something more to life than you've found so far. And maybe you realize that in your life, you've done things that are wrong, that need to be righted. There's only one way to right those wrongs. That's through the blood of Jesus. If you confess your faith that He is the risen Son, if you repent of your sins, and if you are immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins, guess what? They'll be washed away by the blood of Christ. And you'll be a new man or a new woman. If you have any need today as you examine yourself, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.